A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tools Tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, Wimbledon Relived, and Not So Manic Monday. <laughs> um, yeah. It's strange to think that in an alternate universe, we're all experiencing the busiest, most hectic day of the tennis calendar down the road, well, down the road from me in SW19. And instead, well, I don't know about you, but I'm sat on my sofa. Well, I am dressed. I was going to say in my pants, but I am... <laughs> I am dressed, but I'm certainly not, you know, poised and ready to 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 go on the telly or anything. I mean, it is a very different universe that we're living in. Mm. And yet, at the same time, I still find myself trying to crowbar these matches in to, to be able to watch them all in time because we've, we've just watched four hours of a match for today's podcast, having recorded yesterday's show, and then we've got tomorrow's to look forward to. I mean, look, I'm having the time of my life. I'm reliving, I'm reliving 2001 and loving every single minute of it. But uh, yeah, around actually making meals for children and like going to the park and all that sort of thing, I am struggling a bit to fit it all in. Hence, sleepers had to go. We're spending, we're dwelling quite a while in in 2001 land, aren't we? We're there today and tomorrow. Yeah. And it turns out that that's important because David didn't see 2001 Wimbledon. Mm. Well, much of 2001 full stop. You were in a windowless room in the arse end of Germany or something. (laughs) Indeed. I, I did, I missed the entirety of the 2001 Wimbledon until the final, which uh, we'll get on to more tomorrow when we actually watch that as one of our matches because the, the one we're doing tomorrow is the 2001 men's singles final between Goran Ivanisovic and Pat Rafter. Today it's Pete Sampras against Roger Federer in the fourth round. Um, but yeah, at the time I was in my fourth year working for the ATP Tour. I'd been a communications manager for three and a half years traveling around. I had informed the powers that be that I would like to have a go at writing and interviewing and all that sort of thing. And they said, okay, then you can go and work on this new thing that we've got called a website. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, uh, and we produce it in Hamburg, Germany. Um, so off you go to the office a- there. Apologies to Hamburg, Germany, not the arse end of anywhere. I thought it was somewhere a little more arse than that. Uh, apologies. <laughs> it, it was delightful. It was delightful. Uh, the, the office was an arse end of somewhere, though. Um, and anyway, I'm sitting there and I get there and I'm like, we get to the fourth round, Magic Monday, Manic Monday, and I'm thinking, right, there's a lot of cracking matches on here. There's Roger Federer <laughs> against Pete Sampras. There's Tim Henman later. Which channel is it on here in Germany? And they said, it's on Premiere. I said, all right, where's, where's that? And they said, we haven't got that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so I was a little bit perturbed by this, uh, and, and I'm t- frantically trying to think, how do I get myself out of this job? Uh, but I've signed up for the rest of the entire week until the weekend when I would go off to Gestad for the tournament there. Um, so anyway, that's when I discovered that actually it was available on BBC Radio through their website in inverted commas, that I'd never heard of before. But anyway, so I was able to listen to the BBC radio coverage throughout the rest of the week, and that's what made me decide that I wanted to be a commentator right then, that week. And you fired off emails to to the two commentators you'd been listening to. Yeah, yeah, Ian Carter, who was the tennis correspondent, and Richard Evans, very long-time 
experienced, respected journalist and reporter. He was the, ten- the Sunday Times tennis correspondent and a commentator for the BBC. And they brought the championships alive for me over in Germany. And I mean, that's what they do. You know, that's what the, the job of the radio commentator is for people who can't see it to try to bring it alive. And, and it, and it did the job for me. It made it magical. I mean, I think it, I actually think that Wimbledon, if you think of Tim Henman's run as well and, and everything else that went into it, it was one of the all time great Wimbledons, including the ending. Um, and, to listen to it on the radio where your mind is having to do the job for you because you can't see it using the words they they describe and you conjuring the images on the back of those words it makes it even more mystical and and fantastical trust david law to turn not being able to watch one of the greatest wimbledons of all time into a positive <laughs> yeah and I've, and now well and 20 years on here i am watching it it's awesome. In a windowless room in, in Solihull. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you've moved on from working in tennis and not being able to watch Wimbledon to working in tennis and this year still not being able to watch Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what were you up to in 2001? Were you still shuffling around on your bum? Uh, no, I was on my feet now. Right. I was, I for, was for anybody in confused reception. about that, please listen to yesterday's <laughs> podcast for context. <laughs> Or or not? Um, <laughs> yes. No. I was just at school. Just at school doing your thing. Yeah. Four, four years old. Five years old. Yeah. But walking. Blonde, but crucially walking. walking. Yes. Yeah. Matt was a um a sort of Mediterranean looking blonde child. Hmm. In unexpected <laughs> discovery news. With very green eyes. With very green eyes. Yeah. Uh, what was I doing in 2001? Well, I was really into tennis by this point. I was in, I, it was probably 2000, possibly actually 2001, um, that I got heavily, heavily into tennis um, and adopted it as my own. Before then, it was something that my family were very, very into. And uh, my brother was a junior player and I sort of rebelled against it a bit, actually. I was like, you know, the odd eye roll, maybe, maybe when Wim- really? Wimbledon was on at home. <laughs> but then suddenly something clicked and I just adopted it as my own. And, and bef- before long, I was known as Tennis Cathy at school. So when I go for something, <laughs> I really, really go for it. I'm a very all or nothing type character. So, yeah. Um, and maybe it, I can't quite remember. I'd love there to be one moment that I could pinpoint as this was what got me into tennis. But unfortunately... It's not quite as pithy as that, but I could certainly imagine a world where it was this Wimbledon and possibly even this match. Um, Because, I mean, it felt important at the time. It felt great at the time. It it even felt like a changing of the guard at the time. But it has taken on more significance with every year that has passed by since then, hasn't it? Mm, It it has an... I think it did feel like a changing of the guard, a passing of the torch at the time. To, Although, to quote himself. <laughs> or the, yeah, I, I wrote this oh, no, massive you said article. Oh, no, didn't you? I did, yeah. Sorry. I wrote this massive article straight after, well, shortly after, a few months after this uh, this match, this story, um, and I got a chance to go to Switzerland and and meet Federer, meet all of his team and try to tell his story so far and, and kind of get a sense of what might be to come. We, but, we will be quoting uh, from that article, folks. It's, it's too good not to. We've also decided to post Sports it. Illustrated? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no Frank DeFord today. We've got law circa 2001. Sorry, everybody. Uh, that's all you got. Um, uh, but we're, we're going to anyway. We're going to post that on the tennis podcast website if you want to have a read what the world was like uh, through my eyes, at least nineteen years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, the link will be in the show notes to this. But yeah, I, I think it feels in in hindsight, you look at it and it looks like a very clear, defined moment, and and that's what it felt like at the time as well. And yet, when you look at the context. It took another two years after that for anything to actually happen that you could say Roger Federer backed up that day with, which I think it's important to remember that because it's just it's not quite as sort of Hollywood as as it appears at first appearance. But 
This is where we, dis- we, we had clear confirmation that the ingredients for Roger Federer to follow in the footsteps of Pete, Pete Sampras were discovered. Speaking of Holly- Hollywood, David, and thank you very much for, for that segue. It, 2001 was the year that the first Harry Potter film was released. I went to see that at the cinema and found it so dreadful that I didn't see any of the subsequent films. I understand... Have you still never seen ...from reliable sources that the films improved greatly... Um, and I and I'm fully ready to believe that, but I was so turned off by that first film and the bad, bad child acting uh, <laughs> that I never returned to that particular well. Um, I fell asleep three times trying to watch that film. I've <laughs> I've tried to watch it three times and fallen asleep every single one. Really, I think that was the first film I knew sort of off by heart. Wow, I, I see all the words to it. Matt's got that sort of. You just dissed Bruce Springsteen. No, no, I mean it's not that. It's not that level. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still recovering from that one. Um, It was the year, of of course, of 9/11. It was the year that the Leaning Tower of Pisa reopened after 11 years of engineering to stabilise it, Um, but it remained leaning. Um, They didn't do a very thorough job. Um, the Eden Project opened in Cornwall. Uh, Wikipedia went online, as David's already documented for us. It was a big year for the old internet, wasn't it? Uh, aha! Um, the, the USA invaded Af- Afghanistan. Enron filed for bankruptcy. Dennis Tito became the first space tourist. Uh, and Billie Eilish was born. So there we go. <laughs> Uh, David's I, David's looking slightly suspicious at the mention of the name Billy Eilish. Do you know who Billy Eilish is, David? Can't say I do. do you, you genuinely have never heard of her? No. I always think her, is it? <laughs> I always think these these birth um, years are a good insight into Woolly's musical tastes. Yes. Get a lot oh, of, it's, a, it's a musician. Yes. yes. She's very talented. What sort? Right, what's she do? Uh, sort of edgy pop. What would I know? You would have heard her yeah. throughout the Australian oh, Open this yes, year because they were playing it all the time in the stadium there. Would I? Mm. Yeah. You, you, right. couldn't, you couldn't escape from Billie Eilish in Melbourne 2020. I thought you got the name wrong. Anyway, let's return to... Uh, let's return. <laughs> I thought she was thought she meant Billie Idol and was about to correct herself and redo that bit. Okay, before before we all go full partridge, <laughs> I know I started it, but let's... Let's try and rein it in a little. Uh, that was the Electric Light Orchestra. Um, high times. <laughs> Let's go back to 2001 and a time when Roger Federer was, was 19 years of age and had won Junior Wimbledon three years previously and, and, and had been hyped at around about that time, very much so, but had, had lost first round in both of the senior Wimbledons that he'd played since then. He'd lost to Yuri Novak and he'd lost to Evgeny Kafelnikov. So by reaching the fourth round in 2001, it was already a big, big breakthrough for him. Yeah, it was a massive deal. felt like a big deal um, just because he was... He was beating people that I think we all thought he had the talent to beat, people like Jonas Bjorkman, uh, Xavier Melise. But, you know, he had to beat Melise in, in five sets from two sets up. So there were there was a, a feeling of a soft underbelly, really, in Federer at that time, that if you hung around long enough, you could get to him. Um, and he lost loads of matches like that, loads. And quite interesting watching the Sampras match back. There are a number of points in it where I, even I, – I didn't watch it at the time, as I say, but I think if, I'd a, if I had have been, I'd have been thinking he's, he, he's in trouble here. The, there's, a, there's a moment where Sampras is putting this pressure on him, that pressure on, on him. The moment is providing pressure. And I would have thought on evidence received to, to that point, he's, got, he's going to have problems here. And uh, and he he that's that's why it felt so significant, really, the fact that he didn't buckle, and he still came out on top. The the thing is, 
what I found particularly interesting when when going back to this match and and reading the the research on on the build up and the state of play and context going into it, Federer had had the far better year on the basis of the um, the race. Uh, I, I can when I say that I hear Rafa saying it uh, in a in a heavily Spanish accented voice. Um, I, I they were hyping you. they were hyping the race big time. Back then. <laughs> um, I was going to say I hear you doing it in Rafa's voice. Right, great. We're all on the same page here. Um, Sampras was six in the world, though had been elevated to top seed by the Wimbledon seeding formula, which. You know, I knew I knew that the seeding formula made made adjustments for people's record, but a jump from six to one, I I found pretty jaw dropping. So he's six in the world, but twenty two in the race. So on the basis of results for two thousand and one, he was twenty two in the race, hadn't won a title since Wimbledon the previous year. Federer is fifteen in the world and seven in the race. So on the basis of two thousand and one results, Federer is by far. The higher ranked. I mean, seven, seven to twenty-two is is a big leap. Now I know Sampras was a seven-time Wimbledon champion and a four-time defending champion, and I'm not suggesting that doesn't count for something, and that his seeding shouldn't have been adjusted at all. But you know, the story of the young, the young upstart who'd lost two first rounds um, against the seven-time champion doesn't quite tell the full story. No, and Federer had just reached his first Grand Slam quarterfinal at the French Open, had a couple of decent warm-up events on the grass. But, I mean, I always find the that kind of seeding formula change interesting. It's sort of, what do you put more weight on, current form or historical form? And I think it's, maybe David can give us a sense of just what a force Sampras was at Wimbledon. I mean, I didn't live through, obviously, as we know, Sampras dominating as he did in the 90s but just I mean he'd won what 53 of his last 54 matches at Wimbledon was there this was there this sense that he was a a fading force that was sort of once he got to Wimbledon everything would be all right again or were people doubting him even at Wimbledon yeah I think that more generally, they were doubting him, yes. Uh, also, bear in mind, in the second round, he'd had a really difficult passage through five sets against Barry Cowan, a match that he'd been two sets to love up in, went the distance in five. I think Barry played really well that day, but even so, it wasn't a scoreline that, that had ever happened before to, to Sampras in early rounds against anybody. It just d- didn't happen. I mean, the earliest he'd lost since the first year he won it was to, to be defeated by Richard Krychek in the 96 Wimbledon. Um, I do feel that being around on the tour with him at the time, he he was starting to feel old and jaded by tennis standards at that point, and there was a there was a loss he had to to Andy Roddick um, because Federer and Roddick were both coming through the ranks at the same time, similar sorts of ages, and, and there was a moment in that where Roddick hits him full in the chest with a serve and almost knocks him over, and there was a, it just suddenly felt like. Cracker, the game feels like it might be moving on a bit here, and I'm not sure Pete has got the energy left in him to go with it. But at the same time, when he got to Wimbledon, and we saw it the year before, he'd he'd won that seventh Wimbledon, beating Rafter from a set and a breakdown, I think it was, in uh, in the final, and he just found a way. He he still had a gear when when he needed it and I mean he would still go on and play incredible matches after after this one as well he would win one more grand slam but it was it was not inevitable the way it had been people were starting to get to him and I think the life of tennis which had had taken something out of him old and jaded at 29 yeah and it does sound ridiculous now but people weren't playing apart from Jimmy Connors and Agassi would do it later in the mid-2000s. But apart from Jimmy Connors, who got me into tennis by having his run to the semifinals of the US Open at the age of 39, people weren't doing that. Uh, Sampras was 29, Borg retired at 26, lots and lots of players. Once you got to your late 20s, really you were considered to be 
entering the, the last stages of your career. And nobody won Grand Slams after 30 back then. It just didn't happen. That's how it, that's how it felt. There is an absolutely withering line from Steve Byerly in, in The Guardian, <laughs> written, uh, written after the Sampras' defeat to Federer in the round of 16, which says... In hindsight, Sampras's five-set second-round struggle against Britain's Barry Cowan last week was an indelible pointer to his lack of form and confidence, to his decline and ultimate fall. <laughs> Should we all have known when he was taken to five sets by Barry Cowan? Bless him. But it's it's one of those, isn't it? Like If you think of it now, when, when Federer's had some five-set wins, occasionally you might spin them as oh, he was pushed to five sets, but he still came through. It's a sign that even when he's pushed, he's still going to win. He's still got what it takes in in the biggest moments. I can imagine that, that okay, the struggle against Cowan was was sort of spun that way to, to a point of, actually, this guy is really hard to beat at this tournament, even when he's not playing his best against an inspired opponent. It, I, uh, I mean, plus, and, and, sorry, he did play the match of his life, Barry Cowan. I, I remember watching that match very, very clearly and being so into it. But yeah, of course, things things look so different with with the benefit of hindsight, don't they? And the next round, Sampras won in straight sets. Okay, against a player you would expect to win in straight sets against, but he did. And actually, in this match, it's not like Sampras plays a poor match. He he. He gives everything to, to Federer. Maybe it's not his best ever day. Maybe five years earlier, it might have been different. We, we will never know that. But this wasn't a an on 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 empty Pete Sampras. He was he was playing well, and he was also trying to impose his will on the match. And Federer stood up to it. Federer, interestingly, in his run to that fourth round, he faced Xavier Melis in the second round and himself was taken to five sets, having led by two sets to love. And that one I find really interesting because, and the commentators are referencing this at the time, Federer had a reputation for, I mean, he had a reputation for having a bit of a soft underbelly and as, as you reference in your, well, in the article and in your the an- anecdote that you've told on the podcast a couple of times, that line, him asking you, why do I lose all the close matches? But he he also had a bit of reputation for his concentration just deserting him, particularly when he was cruising or in positions of great control. And there was some speculation about whether that would happen um, against Sampras and perhaps the fact that he allowed that to happen against Melise in the second round and was almost, almost punished for it. Maybe that helped dial him in against Sampras because he had had his fingers burned a few days before and he knew he couldn't afford to do that against a player as supreme as Sampras. So I do wonder how crucial that second round match against Xavier Melis turned out to be for Roger Federer. Well, he got out of it, didn't he? He got himself into a hole and he got out of it. And that's um, I, and I think every stage of his career up until that point and the two years that followed were the platform for what he ended up becoming. He experienced all this stuff. He tweaked things. He learned how to deal with situations. But he wasn't like Nadal, who just came out and and knew exactly what he was. Now, Nadal built a tennis player, but he was already a competitor. Federer was a tennis player, a technician, and a genius, but he built a competitor. And, and I think that, that there's a very big difference there, and you can see how it could have it could have gone wrong for Federer. There's no question in my mind that we could have we could have had a situation where he became nothing, because I I, I don't think it was inevitable that he worked all this out. I think it's a I actually think it's a huge credit to him that despite his immaturity and the the potential pitfalls, some of which he fell into but dug himself out of, he created what we what we know today because it wasn't just click of a fingers and Federer has been very open about that period of his career and admitted that he wasn't working hard enough or doing the right things and there was that incredible interview he gave i think it was the start of 2019 in down in australia where um he burst into tears at the mention of peter carter and it and it really sort of blew up on the internet this interview of Federer in tears but I think what was lost was actually what he said which was that he's 
obviously Peter Carter, who died in 2002. And he said that 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 woke him up and it made him realize that he couldn't waste his talent. And he he was slightly doing that for for a few years, certainly before this 2001 match and even even in the months that that followed it. And I think, you know, he looks back now and he says, I'm just I'm proud of the fact. And I think Peter Carter will be proud of the fact that I didn't waste my talent and I did as you said, turn myself into not only a great tennis player, but also a competitor and someone who, someone who got the absolute most out of their game. Mm. Peter was uh, like a second father figure, really, particularly in tennis terms. He was a father figure in his early years, and he was one of the people I, I interviewed uh, in late 2001 when I got that chance to go to Switzerland. And a year, a year later, he died. And uh, I mean, it was, it was tra- tragedy, lovely guy, just the nicest guy, somebody I, I enjoyed the company of really immensely and and got to know Federer through him because he he was he was pretty straightforward about Roger's drawbacks and the, and the problems that, that he had to encounter and, and overcome if he was going to make it. Um, immaturity, um, distractions. All of the, and there were there were plenty of them, um, and I. Th- but at the same time, he loved Roger. You knew you could see that the way he talked about him. He loved him. He he knew he was a good kid, a good guy, and that he he'd got to take these frustrations as a direct hit and just just weather them. Help Federer to to become the man that he's become. And obviously these were very formative years, but that's what Peter Carter achieved, I think, is that he 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 allowed Roger to make mistakes and learn from them. And the good thing about Federer is that he was a genuinely good guy. He he always knew what was important really. Um he might his temper might get the better of him and it used to. Um and there was there was a moment I think when he got he, he got really in trouble for, for ripping a, a curtain in in a Swiss tennis hall by throwing his racket at it in frustration. And he was, he was made to, to, I think, scrub the, the floors of the, the locker room as a punishment. Um, but okay. Those were temper tantrums. You know, the real, the real guy was, was a, was a genuine, uh, soul. And his reaction to Peter Carter's death was showed the sort of person he was and and he and he and he lived with that throughout and I think he still lives with it today I think he still is inspired by that man to do what he's done in 2001 um Peter Carter wasn't wasn't officially coaching him by that point he was still very much involved in his development and as you say a, a father type figure in the background but it was it was Peter Lundgren um that was coaching Roger Federer that was that was in his players box a really you know exuberant character and in Sampras's players box at the time was Paul Anacone he he had lost his coach Tim Gullickson what a couple of years before David not um it was actually uh, quite a few years it was it would have been five years before now that um um, uh, Tim Gullickson was diagnosed with brain cancer in in 1995 and there were those incredible images of Pete Sampras crying on court during his match against Jim Courier shortly after he'd heard that news uh, and Tim died a year later and meanwhile Paul Anacone was the assistant coach of Pete Sampras throughout those couple of years he kind of learnt under the guidance of Tim who'd and, and I think it's it is it is one of those interesting things to, to note that Pete Sampras wasn't a natural grass court player at the start of his career. He won the US Open in 1990, showing his talents, just playing this incredible hard court game, serve and volley, but he couldn't move on grass at all. And Tim Gullickson helped him to overcome that, to, to believe that he could achieve on grass. And if you look at the early years of results in 91, 92 of Sampras at Wimbledon, then they're not good. Um, relatively speaking, he got to the semis in 92, but he got served off the court by Goran. We talked about that a few days ago. Um, but yeah, Paul Anacone was a natural chip and charger, one of the old style chip and chargers, and, and they just meshed as a pair. Um, and uh, and yeah, so he was with him for, for, for many, many years. And you've been speaking to him, David. So let's hear um, from Paul Anacone now on on what he did ahead of that Sampras match in, in 2001 and, and what he was thinking as it went on. I remember talking 
uh, to a bunch of the coaches and I'd seen Roger play a bunch of times. And I was just, you know, I just remember the game plan was do what you do best. He's very, you know, he's very talented and he's very flashy, you know, but I don't know how much he believes yet in himself. Like, I don't know what his self-belief is at big moments and what'll happen in big moments, but he has a very good shot making game. And, you know, he's a, one of the top young talents on tour. And so Pete, you know, he was really good about going into these matches I mean, that's one of the things that I loved about both Pete and Rogers and, and Tim was like this too. They never take anybody for granted. You know, they always, they, they, they feel like they're better, but they just realize it's pro tennis. And as soon as you just think someone's no good, you lose, <laughs> you know, and they never did that. So he went into the match with Roger feeling pretty good, but I just remember after the, they split the first two sets. And I just remember after the first two sets, I was like, this is going to be a war, you know, cause this kid is fresh and he's young and he, he really just believes. And, you know, to me, you know, the most incredible thing to me was that, you know, Roger just stayed with it the whole time. You know, he never really, um, you know, he didn't really, he didn't really buckle, you know, he didn't buckle at all. And, and, you know, that, to, that to me was kind of the launching of Roger's greatness, you know, um, and then, you know, I, I just know that I was really impressed um, with how well he returned, you know, because Pete served pretty well that day. And and Roger, you know, Roger did a great job, especially returning Pete's second serve. He was returning really well. Um, and he created a bunch of opportunities. He didn't break a ton, but I know he created a bunch of opportunities opportunities to break and i was amazed at how good his hands were you know picking up second serve returns i always like to think that roger is kind of he returns serve like a hockey goalkeeper you know he's really you know he's on the base it's not like novak or like andy it's it's like he's on the baseline these quick little jabs especially when he was younger he was amazing even i think even perhaps even better at it than he is now um uh, but, um, you know, it was just one of those battles. It was two incredibly gifted talents and athletes. And, and then, you know, there was not, you know, there was not a ton in it, you know, and Roger ended up winning, who was it? Six, four or seven, five in the fifth or something, you know, it was yeah, just seven, five something. The fifth. Yeah. You know, it was a couple tie breaks and, 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 um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think they split the tie breaks and, and, and then, uh, you know, it was just a matter of a couple big points. And I felt like, okay, this kid, you know, this kid, if this keeps his head on straight, it's going to be great, you know? And, and I just remember talking to Pete afterwards and Pete's always, look, he hates to lose at majors, especially, and especially at Wimbledon, but you know, he's very pragmatic too. He just said, you know, I didn't play bad and, and I didn't play great, but I didn't play bad. And, you know, he's really talented. He's a really talented young player. He's going to do great if he keeps his head screwed on straight and cut to 20 majors. <laughs> He's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. How much do you feel um, that Pete knew about Federer at that stage? Because they'd never played, and, and Roger wasn't Roger Federer yet, was he? I mean, he was still yeah. a teenager. No. He was still, yeah. even, even then he was a couple of years away from winning his first one. But, but right. did, I think, was he I taken think, by surprise? I don't, I, I don't think so, because, I mean, you know, I think Pete was pretty much, he, he was very quiet, it's, and he was not, a guy that glues himself to every result of every tournament. But, you know, part, a lot of that's my job. And then, you know, I remember, you know, I'd seen Roger play a ton. I'd seen him play a bunch and I knew how talented he was. And, and so I, I, you know, like I said, I think Pete knew how talented he was and always with players like that. The question is, how are they going to react? Number one against me, number two in a major and number three in particularly Wimbledon where I've been so successful on center court. Cause that's a totally different, you know, it's hard to measure what's going to happen in those moments, you know? Um, and I think great players realize that those moments are different than playing, you know, in the third round at Indian Wells, you know, they, they, you walk onto center court and you play Pete there, or you walk onto, you know, Chatrier and face Rafa it's a different you know that that's a different dynamic so that's always the question that you don't know as a player and and I think that's the question that Pete you know wanted you know had to had to see and Roger passed with flying colors because it was his first outing onto center court that match against Pete Sampras on 
Magic Monday in 2001. And there's, there's a little anecdote from, from Federer that, that you tell in your, uh, in your piece, which is on our website uh, now. I think it's just been uploaded, uh, David, um, about the, uh, the, the bloke that escorts the players onto centre court, sort of nodding to each of them and, and saying, do you, do you know what the deal is? Do you know where you're going? And Federer sort of says, nope, don't have a clue. And then he nods to Sampras and saying, well, I, I assume you've got this down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lovely telling from Federer himself, really. And that's something that, I mean, this was 19 years ago that we did the interview. And so it was all very fresh in the mind. I always liked how honest and candid he was, even if at his if and if it was self-deprecating at his own expense but and even now you know he i'm sure he would remember that if you put put it to him he he has that sort of memory but i think for people like me who knew him from the tour and had seen these past two or three years we were always hoping for this opportunity for this chance to see whether he'd really got it or not you know because the talent was so exciting and it, i mean everybody thought that who watched him but there were so many reasons to doubt whether he would actually get over the the hump, so to speak, just to see him have the chance. That and that's the ultimate, isn't it? Sampras, centre court, Wimbledon, the guy who's won seven titles. Well, let's find out. And uh, and that's that's why we're doing this match. Is it's just it's it's just this perfect passing of these two ships. It's interesting hearing him be talked about there by Paul Anacone as as this kind of overly flashy shot maker type potentially lacking a bit of of grit or substance because the commentators it was um David Mercer and and Peter Fleming on the uh, on the coverage that we were watching were commenting during during the warm up while they were building up the match that the one potential issue for Federer is that he just he doesn't have a plan B if if plan A of just going for his shots all the time standing up on the baseline thrashing at that forehand doesn't work out then then there's no plan B it was absolutely fascinating to listen to the commentators talking about Federer then because we get we get so used to seeing Federer as a great and thinking of Federer as one of the greats of the game. We're so influenced in our thought processes of Federer now by everything that's happened for the last 15 years or whatever. Any you know, So any glimpse that we get of them before they turn into who they became, these greats, is always really interesting. And I, I just found myself thinking, okay, what parts of Federer's game did he still need to develop? And how how did the commentators talk about him before he had that aura? And actually, they, I guess as a commentator, you've got a decision to make and they kind of go big with Federer quite early. They, they, they sort of build, they sort of go into the hype quite early and they say, this guy's got a, got a chance here. They'd have, heard, they'd have heard about his talent and you know, and the sort of possibilities that he could be good, but they really run with it. And quite early on, it becomes apparent that Federer is playing really well in this match. And what I what I find so interesting is that everything that we've talked about, Federer having a bit of a temper, having that inner softness, none of that really comes out in this match. This is the match where he almost feeds off Sampras's energy and Sampras's vibe as a champion. And you can almost just see him growing as a tennis player in this match. And all the, all the tools of his game that they're commenting on, the hands, the soft hands, the ability to get the returns back into play, um, you know, that's all there. And his aggression with the forehand and the first shot after the serve, that's all there. And those have, those have stayed trademarks of Federer's game throughout the years. But the one thing that developed in this match seems to be that concentration that calmness that almost that aura that he builds up in this match it, it it's all born here and just to look back on it now is 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 really interesting i also think the body language of sampras from ball one is a real tell as well because as you heard from paul he's he's been told he's done they've done the scouting reports he knows that this kid has got talent and first of all, I feel there is a right, Sonny Jim. You're gonna you're gonna get a couple of proper serves here, you know. And he smacks down a, a one thirty three and a one thirty six in the first game, just to send a message down the other other end of the court. He also punctuates a couple of them with real, yeah, come on, you know, stuff that Sampras didn't necessarily do. He was aggressive 
both in his game and his body language. And it, and I th- I felt he was he was trying to slightly intimidate Federer just to remind him, look, I'm the man here. You, I don't know what you're going to become, but it ain't going to be coming today. And and the fact that Federer stood up to that was was the fascination of this whole match for me. Yeah, there were a couple of sort of quite vicious sounding commands from Pete Sampras. There was one that sort of vibrated through my soul in the first set tiebreak, and I squinted at the screen and thought, was it Sampras that did that? Because I don't, I just don't associate him with those sort of guttural guttural reactions on the court but as you say it's indicative of of the match that he he knew he had on his hands yeah he was being pushed stretched in the early stages I was slightly worried that I had misremembered the match and it was (laughs) it was a match of great significance but potentially not a, a match of great quality because there are stretches of it that are just extremely serve dominated um, yeah. it's we don't get a rally until the third game um you know the, the first couple of serves are are aces and i was thinking oh my god i i know that this match is pushing four hours i'm not sure i can watch this for four hours but it's a match that like the players elevates itself in the moments it's a match of yeah of great lulls but but lulls that that make the highs all the better and that is what the great five set matches are like Mm. You you needed the quiet moments in a way as well to build to really ramp up those moments the, the tie breaks the ends of sets the stakes being so high and and I think you're right the fact that Pete was behaving the way he was told you the stress that he was under that this kid was putting him under that he was putting up I'm, I think Sampras played well and my view had always been in throughout his entire rivalry with Andre Agassi and you know how much Andre Agassi impressed even somebody who didn't want him to win like me in 1992. And throughout the years, there were moments that Agassi played at an incredibly high level. But I always felt that when Sampras played his highest level, he won. And 1999 would prove that. They, they met each other in the Wimbledon final. Agassi played really well. Sampras won in straight sets because he was that good. And here he was against a guy that even when Sampras was playing his absolute, well, I don't, maybe it wasn't his absolute best, but he was playing well and he was doing all the things that Pete Sampras does. He wasn't taking anything for granted. He was dialed in from ball one and yet he couldn't get away from this guy. And in fact, he was str- struggling to hold on to him. Um, and I think that that summed up the talent level of Federer more than anything to see him go up against the best that I'd ever seen to that point. So Federer takes the first set on the tie break. Um, and it's it's actually Sampras that gets the first break of serve in the match, in the second set. Yeah, well, something that hasn't changed is Federer's inability to take his break points. <laughs> he um, he goes the first uh, two and a half sets, you know, he, he gets 10 break points and doesn't take any of them. And most of the time, to be fair, it is Sampras coming up with timely first serves in crucial moments. But there's a Again, it's an it's an illustration of how this was a big moment for Federer. He didn't he didn't panic. He didn't, he didn't get frustrated when he wasn't taking those break points. He, I think, it's such a hallmark of his game now when he plays big servers. He waits for his opportunity and eventually he he backs himself to take one when he has to, and that's that's what he does in this match against Sampras. Yeah, but it's um, yeah. I mean, it's one of those just back and forth matches where as soon as one raises their level, the other raises their level, and all the best moments come at the ends of sets. Um, and yeah, Federer wins the first and third, and Sampras takes the second and fourth, and we and we find ourselves in a fifth. And I thought that that fifth set, having watched it now, although I didn't see it at the time, of course, but when Sampras levels, you see the first and pretty much only moments of. Federer slightly wobbling mentally and just and and he he wore that look and he, I used to see it all the time back then of why is this happening to me why I'm I'm I can play all these shots and I'm supposed to be able to win all these matches why is this happening to me you could just see that little flicker on his face um, which used to manifest itself so much more dramatically in loads of other matches but then as Sampras is off having a bathroom break. Federer a, a starts, very extended bathroom yeah. break. Mm. Federer starts um, redoing his headband and folding <laughs> it and 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 uh, 
and and it seems to me that that maybe just calms him down a bit. Um, he doesn't do a very that, good that, job of it. No, he doesn't do a very good job of it because it's all a bit out of kill to the, the, the Nike. The Nike sign <laughs> is a little bit off center. He sits uh, when he there puts for about on. eight minutes trying to fold this thing precisely so that the Nike tick is exactly bang in the center of his forehead. And bless him, he probably didn't know, but it was it actually ended up above his left eyebrow. <laughs> but I think the whole process just calmed him down a bit and got him back into the right. Okay, it's one set. Let's start this one. Let's get on with which it. Which is a, um, which is a bit of a backfire from Sampras because I mean I, I he wasn't known for for tactical bathroom breaks. But as I say, it was a long <clears throat> bathroom break, um, and, well, and he th- was the one he... with the momentum at that stage. And I suspect you know, given the insights that Anacone's given us there about the the suspicion and the awareness that the occasion and the stage might might get to 19-year-old Federer giving him a few moments to to think about it would seem like a smart move but little did mm. he know that Federer had some folding to do yeah it gave him chance to regroup because when he goes off the court at two sets all uh, and look and I think it's a perfectly First of all, it's a legitimate thing that players do all the time. And secondly, I think it's a it's a, on paper a sensible tactic from Sampras. Let the kids stew on it. And at the start of that toilet break, my thought is I would not be surprised if this is 6-1 Sampras in the fifth set because we'd seen it before. We'd seen Federer just have his moment, play incredibly well, get a lead, and then capitulate. And if ever there was a chance to do that here he'd got his perfect excuse i've had a good day i've done i've shown you all how good i am it's not it's gone against me it's not fair and i've lost six one in the fifth um and well again it was just the moment that he showed everybody that there's more to him than that um and and that was that was such a thrill to see that that talent blossoming into what would become a truly well great player and one of the greatest ever and I think what makes Federer so captivating to watch is the the audacity of his tennis throughout his career and, you know, the fact that he goes for it. You know, he wants to play on the front foot and there's a moment in the fifth set where we where we really see that because he's break point down in the fifth set at four or four all. And second serve, he served volleys. And Sampras hits a, ret- a, a wonderful return right at his feet and Federer picks it up. And then Sampras plays another passing shot and Federer guesses right and puts away a backhand volley and gives a, gives a huge fist pump. And it's, it's those moments of Federer's career which I think make, you know, just other reason why people love him so much because he plays high-risk tennis. And when you get that high-risk tennis right on the biggest points... It's it's enthralling. You can't you can't just not have the hairs sort of stand up on the back of your neck when he does when he does things like that. And and even in two thousand and one, on the biggest moment against against his hero Sampras, he was managing he was managing to do it. And yeah, it's just another moment in the match where you see the Federer that he will eventually become. It's a it's a clean return winner to clinch the match from Federer with Sampras serving. 5-6 in the fifth set and 15-40 and down. He takes his first match point as Federer and he sinks to his knees immediately in a celebration that ends up being reminis- reminiscent of the celebration when he when he wins the thing for the first time against Philippoussis uh, in, in 2003. Yeah, and I think it, it meant nearly as much to him. Uh, this was his hero. This was the man. And he was taking him out. And, and you know, I think it's the banishing in his mind of all those questions because it had been going on for, it's a long time, you know, three years between him winning the boys' title and turning pro a week later in Gestad in Switzerland in 1998 to 2001. Lots and lots of flickers and demonstrations of his talent followed by, frankly, not delivering and everybody going, Honestly, have you not got what it takes? And that was what was happening for three years. Now, it would actually go on for another two years until he won that first slam, really, because this was just yet more ammunition for, well, we can see how talented you are. How come you aren't winning? But 
I think that these were moments of enormous relief, those two moments, um, and, and you saw it in that reaction. And there's there's another great line. I mean, there's loads of them, a, a, a great line, um, a quote from Federer from your, your piece with him, David, where he describes that moment and his reaction and celebration. And he says, all I could think of to do was lie down because he sinks to his knees and then he immediately does a sort of side somersault and ends up on his back and he said all I could think of to do in that moment was to lie down and I could have laid there forever but Mm. it was out of respect for Sampras and that he that he got up and jogged to the net he said he thought to himself well as much as this moment's great for me it's probably awful for him so I'll let him get his bit over with and get off the court as as quickly as possible and actually Sampras does wait for Federer and they leave the court together and there's a lovely little moment where they're walking side by side and it was the time before the um, the customary bowing or curtsying towards the Royal Box had been uh, done away with. And uh, Sampras stops to, to bow towards the Royal Box and Federer's just half a step ahead of him and is obviously completely forgotten and has to do a sort of stuttering moonwalk backwards to sort of <laughs> pretend, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know this. Yeah, I've got this down. Um, yeah, it's a lovely little moment. And I think uh, his reaction of of running to the net is, again, just an insight into the guy he really is and and was. He has respect. He does love the sport. He loves these people. He can't believe he's getting to play his hero. He loves all of this stuff. Um, And although he wants to beat them all, he is a genuinely respectful person. And I think we've seen that over the years with the people who come into touch with him. You know, he's, he's he's a good guy. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So he beats the seven-time champion, Pete Sampras. Um, he, he becomes one of the favourites for the title, Wimbledon 2001. He starts being talked about as a potential multi-Grand Slam champion and then he loses to Henman in the quarterfinals. And then he goes to his home tournament in Gestad or nearby home tournament in Gestad on clay and gets booed off the court after a thrashing by Ivan Lubacic. And, and the stutters continue for, for, well, for two years, don't they? Because mm, I think he gets to the fourth round of the US Open and faces Andre Agassi and gets absolutely thrashed. In a, again, it was it was another match that I'm hyping up and I'm looking forward to and I'm setting my alarm for and I'm <laughs> you know I'm telling everybody about. You've got to see this. This is Roger Federer, the guy who beat Sampras. He's playing Andre Agassi at the US Open and he came onto the court wearing 
all red from head to toe. Red shirt, shorts, socks, shoes. I mean, it was a dramatic sight. And he couldn't cope with Agassi's broadside of power of taking the time away from the baseline. And he lost comfortably. Uh, and it was, it was very short. It was the week after that I, that I had chanced him to go to Switzerland and meet him. Um, and that was followed by other early round losses the next year. The, the Australian Open, the, uh, the French Open, Wimbledon he lost, is, is when he lost in the, uh, the first round to Mario Ancic. You know, all these question marks that were being asked still. Lots and lots of great results in between these big losses. Um, but yeah, it, it, took, it took a while until he finally sorted it out. And for Sampras, he only played one more Wimbledon in 2002 and famously suffered defeat on the graveyard of champions court number two to George Bastle in the second round and he never came back to Wimbledon. So that was, yeah, that was probably his last great chance of, of winning that title one more time. And he did, he did win one more Grand Slam and he had the opportunity to retire in, in the best possible fashion at the US Open in 2002. But one of the things I, I texted the, the group during the match was, imagine telling Sampras during this or even after it that you'll never win a, another Wimbledon. And Matt, you replied. Imagine telling Federer that he'd win eight. And I, I mean, I can't, I really do think it's so difficult to get your head around the fact that this match is 2001. Sampras is the all-time Grand Slam leader. Eight years later, Federer will have overtaken him. Another 10 years later, two more players will have overtaken him. I mean, there's a, I think there's, I think there's a um, possibility that people have a kind of collective amnesia about how good Sampras was because of what Federer, Nadal and Djokovic have done. And yet at the same time, it is ex completely extraordinary that three players have managed to overtake Sampras when it took Sampras, what, 30, 40 years to catch Emerson's record. I just, it's just another indication of, well, obviously how great these, these three are now in our era, but also just how, just how the sort of perception of tennis history can change in such a short space of time. It also shows how the arc of a career changes because Pete Sampras gave everything he had and he was on fumes when he won that US Open and he hadn't even reached 30. And here these guys are, Roger Federer's going to turn, what is it, 39 next month. Um, Nadal and Djokovic both comfortably into their 30s. So whilst it looks jarring now to see Sampras on 14 and them on 17, 19 and 20 slams, they've had several more years in which to do it now that's not to slight them but i think that they're they found ways to elongate their careers in a way that he he just couldn't and people didn't about them in one last poetic twist about this fateful match in 2001 of course roger federer ended up employing pete sampras's coach at the time paul anacone later on in his career in in 2010 when they started working together, let's hear from uh, Paul Anacone about that. When I started coaching Roger uh, 2010 and, you know, Pete and I were and are still good friends and, and um, Pete, you know, knew Roger because he had played and, you know, they were on the tour together for a few years. So I got to know him and Roger's so humble. He always looked up and still does look up to past champions. So he kind of looked up to Pete. So when Roger started dominating at Wimbledon and everyone started staying back, Pete could not understand. He was like, what happened to grass court tennis? I don't understand what's happening, you know, and actually Tim talked about it a lot too. And Tim, a little bit unfortunate for him that kind of as Pete dwindled and before Roger became great was really the same time that Wimbledon slowed the courts and the balls got heavier. And that was really, you know, to me, detrimental to Tim's game chances to winning Wimbledon. And I was trying to explain to Pete how the grass is thicker. The balls are a little bit heavier now. Um, the new uh, equipment, the rackets and the strings allow players to return better from bad positions and pass better from bad positions. And so people started staying back. And so Pete could not understand it. He was like, I don't get it. He's like, you can't serve in Bali. And I said, I don't, I get, he goes, I just don't get it. He said, How, you know, you give even Isovich 
serving with basketballs and he can serve in volley still. I don't, I don't understand that. And so basically I said, look, Roger's coming to LA next week on the way to Indian Wells. Let's go out to dinner. You can ask him about it. And so it was, that was one of my, one of my highlights was being able to go to dinner with Roger and Pete and all of our wives and all the women were at one end of the table and the men were at the other. And Pete just got to quiz Roger on all the stuff about tennis. And it was so great just to, because Pete was trying to understand how the game had evolved to where it was. And Roger was, Roger was Roger. He was great. He was totally forthcoming. And I remember Pete asking about Wimbledon and going, well, what happened? You know, when we played, you served in Bali, you came in all the time and, you know, what, why is it like that? And why you still, how come, how are you staying back? And what, and Roger just took a beat for a moment and he said, well, everyone kind of plays like that now. And I just feel comfortable playing like that. And I'm just a little better than them playing like that now. So, you know, and, and it was really, it wasn't like being arrogant. It was just kind of factual. He was just like, well, you know, and then, and then Pete said, well, why don't, you know, what if, what if you played me and I came in, he goes, well, then I'd come in more. You know, I wouldn't want to hit all, all those passing shots. I wouldn't want to be, but everyone kind of plays like that. And so from the back of the court, taking the ball early, I feel aggressive. I feel confident on this surface doing that. And I feel like it's really comfortable and that's just how it's evolved. So it was a great couple hours of, of, in, you know, a Roger Federer and Pete Sampras dialogue that if I was smart, I would have video recorded, but I didn't. <laughs> oh, oh, to be at that dinner. Yeah. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? <laughs> That's a sort of Martina Hingis-esque line that, that he mm. uh, recalls from Federer. Isn't it? Oh, I'm just, just better at it than them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, look, uh, as it, it kind of is arrogant, but it is also factual. Um, you know, that it's just... He just says it how it is, um, and it's not something that everybody takes kindly to. I, I think that the the other interesting thing is the way it's evolved because I'd completely forgotten until um, till I read back the the article uh, that, that that I'd written back then is that when he'd first played Kafelnikov, he played him from the back of the court, and he just and and that's what made him realize I need to serve and volley because I can't beat this guy from the back of the court. So he starts serving and volleying literally every first and second serve against Sampras. And you see, I think there's one time where I see him serve and stay back on the second serve. And then years later, as he says, it changes. Everybody's playing from the back and Federer's picking and choosing his moments to come forwards. And now he's sort of reinvented himself again. And I, remember, I, I was interested when Matt was saying that he still liked to impose himself and there was that moment in the 0-1 match. I still think those were relatively sporadic. I think he was a more reactive player back then who, would, who had such a skill set and such reactions that he was able to just react to what you were doing and still beat everybody. These days, because he's older, because he's well into his 30s, he's, it's a much more assertive and premeditated strategy to impose himself i am coming you've got to deal with it back then he was so good that he could just just play their game and beat them at it and this this ability of federer over the years to have adapted his game and play in so many different ways is is the kind of thing that stats about titles can't really pick up but it's it's such a tick next to his name in terms of what makes him so great and I think Nadal and Djokovic have had it as well I think Nadal's certainly kind of adapted from a very clay court game early on to prosper on all surfaces and Djokovic has adapted to Federer and Nadal so they've all done it but for Federer I mean I was looking according to ESPN this match Federer and Sampras there were 254 serve and volley points and then in the 2009 Wimbledon final, that Federer Roddick, there were 11 serve and volley points. I mean, I mean, it's a different sport. I mean, obviously, a lot of that is the way that the surface changed, but Federer played through that and adapted to the surface. And I remember Jimmy Connor's quote from years ago saying, in this era, you're either a clay specialist, a grass specialist, a hard specialist, or you're Roger Federer. And he kind of... He kind of normalised. I mean, Agassi obviously won on all surfaces and Connors did himself as well. And obviously lots of women did. But Federer sort of really normalised being able to be good on all surfaces in this era. And um, mm. yeah, I mean, it's just it's just fascinating to watch him in 2001 playing one way 
and then throughout his career playing in so many different ways, or subtly different ways. I note that you've adopted the the ESPN graphic system of putting ticks and crosses next to somebody's name. <laughs> Federer, adapting skills, tick, serve, tick. What wouldn't you put what wouldn't ESPN put a tick next to for Federer? Nerve. He's got no nerve. <laughs> got no nerve, yeah. Break point and match point conversion. <laughs> um so that's the famous fourth round match in 2001. Spoiler alert, I've already given it away. Federer did not go on to win the title. He lost, in fact, in the next round, the quarterfinal to Tim Hemman. And he went on to lose to Goran Ivanisevic in one of the most famous semi-final matches uh, of all time, played over three days. Um, and tomorrow we will be focusing on the final that year, played, of course, on People's Monday between Goran Ivanisevic, ranked 125 in the world, and Pat Rafter, the two-time US Open champion. We're looking forward to this one, aren't we? Not half. Oh, I mean, I'd love it. I, I've, can we watch it now? I mean, the, the thing is, we, we try to watch the last set together of all these matches. I, but how can, we, how can we avoid any of that atmosphere? Oh, let's just watch it all now. No one's stopping you, David, other than potentially your... <laughs> your wife and children that require homeschooling. But we're certainly not going to stop you. Um, That's for tomorrow, potentially for today, for David. Watch along with us if you fancy it and want want to refresh her. Um, Yeah, thanks to both of you. Thanks to Andrew for doing the research, to Woolly for providing me with facts about Wikipedia and Billie Eilish and for educating David about who Billie Eilish is. Um, and thanks to Gerald, the excellent, excellent cat and our Wimbledon mascot on the boat. T-shirts are now available, uh, modeled by my lovely dad. Um, not sure he knows about that, but dad, you've caused a a flurry of, uh, of interest in on the boat T-shirts. Um, so yeah get your hands on one of those and look like David Whitaker. what could be better um, thanks for listening and we'll see you tomorrow imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 